and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. There's a call button um, above every seat on a commercial airplane. Have you ever used it? Have you ever used the call button? I have, but it's probably been pretty infrequent. Um, You know, maybe it's because we're kind of shy or maybe because we're proud, but we don't like to admit that we have a need. In fact, if there's somebody on the plane that keeps pushing the button, you know, I get a little annoyed with that, right? Um, we're, we're reluctant to, to maybe press that call button, and often we excuse that reticence because it just seems more courteous to wait, you know, to get off the plane. And so, um, you know, we put up with being thirsty or bored or cold or, or hungry or whatever. As Jesus hung on the cross the day that he died, one of the last phrases that he spoke out loud was, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. And it was a subtle but a significant acknowledgement of Jesus' very human need. And it was a small declaration of his physical need. He, in a sense, you could say that he pushed the call button because he knew that God is the one who's ultimately responsible to supply all of our needs. Well, our current message series during this season of Lent is focused on what Jesus said over those six hours as he hung on the cross, dying to pay the penalty for our sins. And I call it crosswords, crosswords, Jesus' statements before he died. And each statement helps us to understand a little better what Jesus accomplished for us when he died and when he rose again. And this morning, I want us to look at two of Jesus' statements together. And I want us to think of those two statements from the cross as the words of need, the words of need. And I would encourage you to turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 19, where we can read those statements. And you find it in your Bible, and I will read it for us, okay? So it's found in John chapter 19, and we're going to begin reading. I'm going to begin reading at verse 25 and read through verse 29. And You know, you find it in your Bible, use the the Blue Pew Bible if you don't have one with you. That's why they're there. And uh, you follow along as I read this passage of Scripture. John 19, beginning at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. 
Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So the first word of need is something that Jesus said to his mother, Mary, dear woman, here is your son, coupled with what he said about Mary to the man he called her son. Here is your mother. And Bible scholars are, are all but united in identifying this man as John, one of Jesus's 12 original disciples, the author of, of the gospel of John. The second word of need is something that Jesus said about himself. I am thirsty. So the question that I want us to kind of think about today together is what, what do these words of need reveal that help us to better appreciate what Jesus did on our behalf at the cross and the empty tomb. So let's talk first about, of all about Mary and John and the need that they had and, and what that reveals to us today. You know, uh, we've already dealt with a, a couple of these statements and, and um, uh, several of them really are concerns about the needs of others. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That was the first statement that Jesus made, and Jesus' killers desperately needed forgiveness. Uh, last week, we looked at, at Jesus' statement, I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise, and that statement was directed to one of the two thieves crucified next to Jesus, and he needed salvation. And, and today, Jesus' first statement is directed toward Mary and John, who were there at the cross together. And if nothing else, that concern for the needs of others in the midst of his own great personal suffering, boy, that's a powerful lesson, isn't it? About God's love as it flowed through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's really kind of what I want us to, to think about is what it tells us about God's love. For example, it's a reminder that God's love is wider than you think. God's love is wider than you think. Well, how so? Well, maybe, you know, it might strike you as a little odd that Jesus referred to Mary as woman or dear woman here instead of mother. There was no disrespect intended, but it's quite possible that Jesus was gently teaching his mother that God's love is wider than you might think. Um, Jesus implied here that spiritual relationships are actually more important than physical ones. Uh, why, after all, why did Jesus entrust Mary's spiritual and physical care to John? Yes, she was likely a widow by then. Most scholars think that, that Joseph had already died. But Jesus had half-brothers, other children of, of Mary and Joseph. Why, why didn't Jesus entrust his mother to them? Mary and John weren't related. Well, apparently, 
None of Jesus' other family members believed in him until after the resurrection. But Mary and John both loved Jesus deeply. They both believed in him. And that was more important to Jesus than some kind of a blood or biological kinship. And and one result of Jesus' death and resurrection is the creation of a brand new family, a new community. And you know, this this is why, folks, why you may enjoy deeper relationships with your Christian friends than you do members of your own biological family who don't follow Jesus. And so what are the characteristics of this new family? this new spiritual family. Well, you become a member of this family through a spiritual rebirth. Uh, The Bible says, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from uh, human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Uh, Members of this family have, have the same love for, the same allegiance to, the one who died for them. Both Mary and John loved Jesus. Both of them believed in Jesus. Both of them trusted in Jesus. For for Mary, Jesus was now more than her son. He, He had become her savior. And for John, Jesus was now more than just his teacher and friend. He had become his Lord. And so you're a spiritual brother or sister to anyone who loves Jesus and is loyal to him. Something else about this new family. Members of this new family are focused on doing God's will. On another occasion, when Jesus was doing his ministry, he once said, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Your your unsaved blood relatives likely have no interest in doing God's will. And that may well explain why you often feel so distant from them. If if you want to do God's will, your closest relationships in life will be with those who share that passion. Something else about this new family. Members of this new family show sacrificial love for one another. Jesus said this characteristic defined his true disciples. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So Jesus wanted John to take his mother into his own home and provide for her. He wanted John to be there for Mary emotionally and spiritually as well. And, you know, the Bible doesn't really tell us what happened a lot next, but um, there is a strong historical tradition that suggests that Mary did indeed live in John's home until she died. And, you know, no doubt that required a level of sacrifice for John, maybe even for Mary too. So I I believe that this scene underlines an important implication for you and me today. What's that? You should value your spiritual family even more highly than your biological family. It may be a difficult thing to hear, but just walk with me through this. Of course you should love your biological family. 
You should do everything to nurture it and protect it and celebrate it. It's, it's one of God's good creations. But your spiritual family, those who are born again spiritually, those who love Jesus, those who want to do God's will, those who are willing to enter into sacrificial love, that, that new family that's been created by Jesus' death and resurrection. And no, it's not like those two families, your spiritual family and your biological family, it's not like they cancel each other out. It's just a matter of priority. Jesus brought into existence a new family, not based on biology, not based on race, not based on nationality or social standing, but based on the fact that like Mary and John, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross together, looking up at him with adoration and with love. Value that family above any and every other family because that's your eternal forever family. Jesus does. God's love is wider than you think. God's love is also deeper than you think. Shift gears a little bit here. You know, it's, it's terrible for a parent to experience the death of his or her child. I've not had to experience that. I hope I never have to. Um, and I can only imagine the incredible grief that Mary suffered watching Jesus die and, and die so painfully. And I wonder, I wonder if Mary uh, remembered what Simeon had said to her as she stood there looking up at her son on the cross. Remember Simeon? He was the old man who had offered a prophecy about Jesus when he was just a baby part of the Christmas story. And he had said to Mary, and a sword will pierce your very soul. I wonder if Mary thought about that standing there. Here's, a, here's something that comes to me as I look at that scene. Suffering, suffering does not mean that God's love for us is lacking. How so? You know, it's quite possible that when Jesus made this statement, he was looking right then at the, at the two human beings that he loved most in this world, his mother Mary and John, who referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, and their suffering that day was very real. But it wasn't some kind of punishment from God, some kind of evidence that God was displeased with them. And that's so, it's so easy to jump to that conclusion when we go through hard times and when we suffer. And, you know, I, I know that we have many people today who here, right here in our sanctuary and listening online, you know, you've gone through very tough things in your life. You may be going through difficult things today. You know, someone you dearly love died recently. Your health is broken or you're trying to recover from a failed marriage or one of your children is far from God this morning or you're facing a financial crisis of some kind or you might be battling against depression or substance abuse or some kind of, of addiction. And, and when, when, when we suffer, when we go through difficult times in life, the question that we often ask is, 
God, don't you love me? Have I offended you? Is, is that why I'm going through this? And Mary standing there at the cross is a reminder that great suffering may indeed come to those whom Jesus greatly loves. And God's love is deeper than suffering. God's love and our suffering, they, they don't somehow cancel each other out. They, they coexist. And, and God, and here's something else, God doesn't always feel obligated to explain suffering to us. I mean, I, I doubt at this moment that Mary understood why Jesus was suffering so terribly that day. I doubt she expected him to rise from the dead three days later. Mary and John's faith at that moment, at that time, was sincere, but it was inadequate. It was hopeful, but it was not particularly well-informed, kind of like your faith and my faith. And we should do what they must have done. We commit our suffering to God, both the pain of it as well as the understanding of it, and we believe that God's love is deeper than all of it. I see one more revelation about God's love in this scene. God's love is stronger than we think. God's love is stronger than we think. Peter, you know, he, he has been set aside as the guy that denied Jesus, right? Well, he, he did. He did that. But he wasn't the only disciple of Jesus who failed Jesus. All of the other disciples, and John included, abandoned Jesus at his point of greatest need. They all miserably failed Jesus. And Jesus knew what would happen. I mean, this is what he said. He said, tonight all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be shattered. And then Jesus was arrested a few hours after he made that statement. What happened? At that point, all the disciples, all, not just Peter, all the disciples deserted him and fled. I mean, who would, who would blame Jesus for writing John off? I mean, with friends like John, who needs enemies, right? But God's love is stronger than you think. And, and th there's a lesson here for you and for me. God's love is always stronger than your failures and my failures. At some point over the next few hours, John decided that he was going to stand with Jesus and be with him come what may. And so here we find him next to Mary looking up at his crucified teacher and his friend. And I think it's impossible to imagine how miserable John must have felt at that moment. I mean, not only was the one that he loved most on this earth, Jesus dying this horrible death right before his very own eyes, but how ashamed John must have felt for, for failing Jesus so badly, for deserting him. And Jesus had every right to reject him. Mary had every right to turn away from John and say, get out of here. So why was John there at the cross? Because he loved Jesus. Love compelled him to be there. 
And I want to suggest to you that there's a bit of John in you and me. Because all of us have failed the Lord Jesus Christ. Every sin you and I commit is a denial of him. Each of us have abandoned him at different points in our lives. Maybe it was just one day. Maybe it was several years, but we've all denied Jesus. But here's what this scene says to me. God's love is stronger than you think. It's stronger than than any failure, any denial, any abandonment. And despite it all, just like John, you can come back and be with Jesus. And if you love Jesus, come back and stand with Jesus at the cross. Love him. Identify with him. You know what's interesting? Did Jesus rebuke John here for deserting him? Did he reject John? Did he he humiliate or disown John? No. Instead, Jesus entrusted John with a great privilege and a great task. Take care of my mom. He entrusted Mary into his care. And that's what happens when you and I come back to the cross of Jesus as well. It's not about being rebuked. It's not about being rejected. And because the love of God is so strong, Jesus indeed will entrust you with some great privilege and some great task if you'll come and love him and identify with him again. Thomas Edison and his staff were developing the incandescent light bulb. And back then it took hundreds of hours to manufacture just one single bulb. So one day after finishing a bulb, Edison handed it off to a young errand boy um, and asked him to take it upstairs to the testing room. And wouldn't you know it, as the boy was starting up the stairs, he stumbled, he fell. And that precious light bulb shattered to pieces all over the steps. And instead of rebuking the boy, Edison reassured him, and then he turned to his staff and told him to start working on another bulb. When it was completed, it took several days, Edison did something really, truly remarkable. He he walked over to the same boy, handed him the bulb, and he said, please take that up to the testing room. Can you imagine how that that boy must have felt at that moment? He knew that he didn't deserve to be trusted with that responsibility ever again. Yet here it was being offered to him again as if if nothing had, had ever happened. And folks, God's love is like that toward you and me. It's stronger than you think. It's it's bigger than our failures. And instead of rejection, Jesus offered him, uh, offers you and me a great privilege, a great task, and above all, a great forever relationship with him now and on into the future. Well, let's move from that statement and reflect on another one of Jesus' statements before he died. Let's call it the second word of need. And it really revealed a need about Jesus. And what, what does that statement tell us? What, what can we glean from that today? What did Jesus' need reveal? This is where he said, I am thirsty. You know, of all of the statements 
of Jesus as he hung on the cross. This one you and I understand the most, right? This one you, you and I can identify with the most. I mean, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, or I assure you today you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, you realize that you're hearing words of no ordinary human being, but everybody here has been thirsty. We've all said, I'm thirsty. I need a drink of water. And Jesus had, had probably not had anything to eat or drink since sharing the Passover meal with his disciples the night before. Since then, he'd been whipped, he'd been beaten, and he'd been crucified. No doubt he was now severely dehydrated. He'd lost a great deal of blood. And infection may have already begun in his wounds. And as a result, he likely had a fever. And this statement is a, well, it's a powerful but necessary evidence that Jesus was and is really and truly human. He had human needs just like us. You know, Jesus needed water just like we do. Today, in our day and age, most people accept that Jesus was human, but they balk at the truth that Jesus was and is God. But in John's day, it was the reverse, at least for some people. They had little problem believing that Jesus was God, but they doubted that Jesus was truly a human being. And so all these kinds of theories were being floated out there that really denied Jesus's humanity. And John knew differently. And of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, only John recorded this statement of Jesus, I am thirsty. And it was important, you see, to John to point to the fact that Jesus was and is both fully God and fully human. Jesus's need underlined his essential humanity. And in order for Jesus to redeem us, folks, he had to become one of us. Our salvation literally depends on Jesus being truly and fully human just as much as it does on the fact that he's truly and fully God. Let's appreciate the fact then that Jesus endured an intense, overwhelming thirst for actual water. It, it points to his humanity, which is so important. But there's also such a thing as spiritual thirst. Jesus needed, above all, to fulfill his Father's will. And I don't want you to overlook what's written just before Jesus' statement. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill Scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. What was happening to Jesus wasn't a mistake. He, he wasn't a helpless victim. Actually, his father was in control of the situation. Jesus knew why he was dying. The mission was crystal clear. Death came as no surprise to Jesus. The cross wasn't a shock to him. In a very real sense, Jesus intensely desired. He thirsted spiritually to complete the work that his father had given him to do. Jesus was spiritually thirsty to pay the price necessary for us to be reconciled to his father. Jesus was spiritually thirsty to drink completely the cup of judgment his father had given him so we wouldn't have to drink it. 
You know, Jesus could have called down countless angels to rescue him at this very moment, but that wasn't his mission. Jesus thirsted above all to fulfill his Father's will. Some years ago now, I visited Quebec City, and I enjoyed seeing some of the historic sites that are, that are there. And um, you historians know that an epic battle was fought there at Quebec City between the English and the French that decisively, through the balance of political power in North America to England, um, French troops held uh, strong positions overlooking Quebec City, and the English general, James Wolfe, decided on a very risky, bold military maneuver. With, with a numerically smaller force, he made his way through a ravine and up the walls to, uh, of a cliff to an area there in Quebec City called the Plains of Abraham. And he completely surprised the French army, and he went on to win Canada for England that day. It was a decisive battle. But it was a fierce battle, and, and Wolfe was, was mortally wounded in it. And as he lay dying, he heard one of his soldiers yell, They run! See them run! And Wolfe asked, Well, who runs? And back came the response, The enemy, sir! They give way everywhere. And after giving a few final orders, General Wolfe said, now God be praised, I will die in peace. And he did. And what's ironic about that is that General James Wolfe both conquered and died on the very same day. Someone far more important both conquered and died on the very same day, Jesus. He knew victory was near, even though he also knew that his death was near. And it's almost, it's almost as if the father and the son kind of had a dialogue at this point. And the father said to him, my son, everywhere they run, the enemy is completely defeated. Satan is in full retreat now. Look at him run away. The way is now open. Salvation has been won. And perhaps Jesus said in his own spirit, if that's the case, my mission is accomplished. God be praised. I will die in peace. Give me a drink so I can shout out, it is finished. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus did say right in the very next verse of that passage in John, John 19.30. Another statement that we're going to reflect on in a couple of weeks from now. Jesus conquered and he died on the very same day. When you enter, when I enter into a relationship with Jesus, our own spiritual thirst gets quenched. You see, all of us need things like forgiveness, love, grace, meaning, purpose, connection with God, and that gets satisfied when we enter into a relationship with Jesus. And it's as if the cross of Jesus becomes like a fountain of cold, clear, spiritual water for your soul and for mine. God's love refreshes us. It renews us. It reinvigorates us. But here's something kind of ironic about this metaphor of thirst. 
When you surrender your heart and life to Jesus, there's also, there's also a new thirsting for God and a new thirsting after God that is quickened rather than quenched. And um, that's a wonderful thing. That's a good thing. The psalmist actually referred to it. Um, David wrote in one place, as the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. In yet another psalm, he said, O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Let me ask you this morning, do you? Do you thirst for God like that in your life? Are you thirsty for God like that in your walk with him? Is your appetite for the things of God getting bigger or less? C.S. Lewis made an observation that challenges me. He wrote, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And he makes this analogy. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. And then he closes. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Boy, isn't, isn't that the truth sometimes, folks? We are, we are just far too easily pleased. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, but there's just very little hunger or thirst in your life for more of God, you need to be concerned about that because it's not spiritually healthy. You see, yes, God does quench one kind of spiritual thirst, but he quickens another. And God always wants us to be spiritually hungry and thirsty for him. So here's a final thought about spiritual thirst. The thirstier for God you get, the more you're going to thirst to see other people discover the water of eternal life that you have. Jesus thirsted to see lost people discover an eternal relationship with his father. Do you? Do you have that kind of a thirst? When you become a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will quicken within you a thirst for more of God, true enough. But he will also increase your thirst to see other people discover Jesus for themselves. So, how can God use you and me to quench a thirst for God among lost people? Because he can and he will. It begins when God puts a specific lost person on your heart. Could be a family member, neighbor, someone you work with, someone you go to school with. Don't, don't be surprised to discover that God has already started to make that person spiritually thirsty for him. So you begin to pray for that person. You take, you take that, uh, the initiative to develop a friendship. Uh, you, you, once trust has been established, you look for an opportunity to get into a spiritual conversation. Maybe you invite them to church for Easter like Amy was suggesting to us earlier today. 
So first, God quenches your spiritual thirst and mine, and then he quickens a new spiritual thirst within us for more of him. And part of that new thirst is to see lost people come to God so they can get their spiritual thirst quenched too. Okay, let's take it to another level, beyond the individual. Do you know what this church needs to be to the Northland community around us? I want you to picture a great big water fountain. A great big water fountain. You see, people need Jesus spiritually as much as they need water physically. And I want to tell you, folks, that there is a lot of people dying of spiritual thirst right around Carl Road Baptist Church this morning. And the irony is that many of them don't even know they're thirsty for Jesus. They just know they're thirsty. And they sense their own spiritual dehydration at some level. And, and my hope and my prayer for this church for the last 15 years that I've served as your pastor is that we can share the water of life with those folk around our church that are spiritually thirsty. And it will still be my hope and prayer for you when I retire later this year and you have a new pastor because that's what it's all about. May this church always be about offering Jesus to spiritually thirsty people. That's our job. That's why we're here. What did our Lord say? Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. I want to tell you about some scientists who decided that they wanted to create a fish that could live outside of water. You know, a fish that could just live on land. So they bred, they crossbred, they hormoned, they chromosomed, and lo and behold, if they didn't create a fish that dreaded the thought of water, but they didn't want to stop there. They, they, um, they were concerned that even though they could, you know, they had a fish that could live on land now, could live outside of water, that the fish still had strong instincts for water. And so they kept working on this fish. And eventually, they created a fish that, um, I mean, it, it was just repulsed at the idea of water. I mean, even humidity created dread in this fish. Well, they were very proud of this accomplishment, so they decided to take this fish on a tour. And wouldn't you know it, somewhere along the way, it accidentally happened, this fish fell into a lake. And there it, it, it just kind of sunk to the bottom of, of the lake, and it, it had its eyes screwed shut. It dared not to do anything because if it did, it was going to get wetter than it was already was. But, you know, it had to breathe. So finally it took a breath, kind of opened its gills, took in a, took in a gulp of water, eyes bulged out. 
took another gulp, and this time it's a little thin-flicked. And the third time it took another big gulp of water, and then it darted away. The fish had discovered the environment that God had created it to live in. And it was one very happy fish. Now, that's one very silly story. How many of you believe you said, Pastor Rick said there was a fish out there that, whatever. (laughs) It's a fable, but it makes a valid point. And what's that? Here's the point. We live in a world that is trying to tell us each and every day that we don't need a relationship with God. When you have been created by God, for God, that's that's the environment in which we're to live and to move and, and to have our being. And, you know, when we discover God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we discover who we are made for and what we're made for and that the environment in which we live is this environment that God himself creates for us. How thankful I am that the one who hung on the cross and said, I am thirsty, is also the one who said, those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your love is wider than we think. It's deeper than we think, and it's stronger than we think. And thank you that we're on the receiving end of that love. Thank you, Jesus, for being human. That's part of why your salvation is so wonderful and so effective, because you are, you were truly and fully human, and you gave up your life for us. And Father, we thank you that we have been created for you. And Lord, thank you that you, you give us, yes, you, you, you quench a spiritual thirst, but you also quicken a spiritual thirst. It's good to be spiritually thirsty for more of you and, and more of an environment in which your lordship is experienced in our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to think about what you did for us again and how it impacts our lives each and every day. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. 
If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.